Hello, everyone. Welcome back to our Sabbath School from Home podcast. We're very lucky not to be confined to our homes quite so much as we have been over the last few months, but we do hope that you continue to listen to our discussion because we're going to continue having them because we enjoy them so much. And um, some other interesting topics uh, up for discussion today. We're not going to stick very closely with the lesson. The lesson seems to jump, and we've commented on this previously, from early in Deuteronomy to the end of Deuteronomy, skipping some interesting bits in the middle, which we, we're going to pick up in uh, this podcast episode uh, right now. And my name's Cameron. Very glad to be talking to you. Oh, Ken is not here. I'm Luke. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Lachlan, and I am going to be reading this evening from a Bible, which I found in a box just recently. It's been missing ever since I moved back uh, from Germany. Um a number of years ago, and I've, I've spent many hours in those years looking for this box, knowing that the Bible was somewhere, uh, and having many of my other Bibles uh, being in obvious locations in boxes that were apparent, and I had completely given up on this particular one, and it, it turned up just um, in the last week. So I'm very excited to have it. It's not a particularly precious or special Bible, but the mystery is resolved. Oh, that's, that's good. Uh, there is a bit of mystery lock in the passage we're going to read in that uh, it doesn't fit into the narrative of the nation of Israel. The chronology is hurting my head a little bit. Uh, and um, it has to do with kings of Israel. And I, I didn't believe that there was any sort of preempting or prediction that there would be a king in Israel in the Pentateuch because... My understanding was that they were not meant to have a king. That seems to come out fairly strongly in Samuel. I was surprised then to read uh, the context of a verse quoted in in the lesson quarterly. They p- pick out one or two verses at the end of chapter 17. But I think we should pick up at uh, verse 14 of chapter 17. And I'm, I might start reading as we'll read to the end of the chapter. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say... Let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. Uh, Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he has taken the throne of his kingdom, he shall have a copy of this law written for him in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall remain with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, so that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, diligently observing all the words of this law and these statutes, neither exalting himself above other members of the community, nor turning aside from the commandment, either to the left or to the right, so that he and his descendants may reign long over his kingdom in Israel. Right. That's that's not the sentiment that's picked up in Samuel. Well, uh, so there's a, a couple of things that I want to jump in even before you get there. Yes, it sort of is. And I think that the wording here is part of what, because I have the same sense as you, Cam, that when Israel do, does want a king in that story in Samuel, God seems to be, willing to give them a king, but somewhat reluctant about it. And I've always thought that the part of the reason for the reluctance is that the stated motivation for the people to have a king is that it's peer pressure. 
hey, look, all the other nations mm. around us have a king. We want a king too. We want to be in on that same game. And that is actually alluded to here in the verses we read in Deuteronomy. Um, you know, when when you've taken possession of the land and settled it and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Yeah. And it's not if, it's when. Mm. Which ah. is really interesting because... I may be confusing the chronology slightly, but isn't Saul after this? Quite yes, substantially yes, yes. after this. And when the time comes, the Israelites are very strongly advised not to do this, not to set a king over themselves, like all the nations around them. And I think the language is even similar in those passages. And yet it's it's predicted with certainty back, back here, um, decades earlier, yeah, this is what it says in Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel 8, verse 7. The Lord told Samuel, listen to the people when they ask for a king. Um, it, it's not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. That's definitely a negative sentiment. Quite. Um, you know, is this another instance of, you know, God hardening Pharaoh's heart in the sense that God knew Pharaoh's heart would be hardened and so events would 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 create a certain outcome is this similar god knew that even though it was yeah. not a good choice the israelites would inevitably choose monarchy yeah i mean obviously one of the interesting aspects of this is is the persistent and endless discussion about the the authorship and chronology of the book itself um you know it's it's, it's presented very much as the words of moses it it can't be entirely the words of Moses because it records Moses's death, and it's pretty difficult to quite see how Moses could have written that. Um, and and so you know that's a, a a trivial example that we may come back and discuss in the future somewhat. But if this is a book of the Bible that is being written after or around the time that Israel is in fact asking for a king, then this is being, that, that contemporary theme is being highlighted in a book that is devoting some attention to discussing the law, and it's trying to highlight the responsibilities and duties of the king. Um, I, I don't know enough about the scholarship to really comment on uh, the, the authorship or dating of the book of Deuteronomy. Um, and an equally valid reading of this is that it's written, as we presume, by Moses, and it includes this phrasing, you'll ask for a king like the nations around you, more or less. And so then when you come to the part of the story where they do ask for a king, lo and behold, they do exactly that. Perhaps they felt justified in asking for it if it had been, you know, prophesied that it would happen that way. Exactly. Um, I, I think it's really interesting. So if we do drop back to, to Deuteronomy 17, where we read... Um, I mean, there's a number of things that jumped out at me. If we are to take this as a little bit of a blueprint for, for um, you know, God's hopes and wishes for the king of Israel, if indeed they had to have a king. So let's put the caveat of slight reluctance. Um, we'll import that back from, from Samuel. But um, the king is meant to have a copy of the law written for him in the presence of the Levitical priests. That's a quirky detail. I, I kind of like that detail. It's not just a copy of the law presented, and it's not a copy of the law that he could inherit from maybe his father who might have been king before him. No, the king is to have a copy of the law written in, his pre in the presence, um, written for him in the presence of the Levitical priests. And it's to remain with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life. So it's 
it's intended that the law of God, as articulated here in, in Deuteronomy, is to be front and centre. Uh, kings, in our day and age, are a bit ceremonial, I suppose, and symbolic. But, but for much of human history, kings have been the seat of the law themselves. And, and here is a king that is, if you like, described as being placed under the authority of a higher law. That, that's a really interesting idea. It is, in a sense, a kind of constitutional monarchy. In, in, in yeah. the, the power, you know, limits are placed by law on the power of the monarch. Um, absolute monarchy is where the, the ruler is above the law. The law sits between them and everyone else, and they apply the law to those below them, um, which is how most historical monarchies sort of tended to work. So again, this mm. is this is very unique, uh, not not completely mm. unique in ancient history. It's really interesting. Um, uh, one criticism of religion um, by those wishing to find, and a very valid criticism, is that it's been often used to uphold the rights of tyrants, the divine right of kings, um, and uh, you know rulers have often cited divine authority to give them permission to do whatever they want and this has extended perhaps even into modern times where certain political leaders have have gone to great lengths to have themselves photographed carrying bibles in front of churches and um what has to be said though if you read the bible is that the bible does not support the divine right of kings in any way mm-hmm. it, it's hugely critical of of those in power at all times and it is notable that all rulers, whether from Christianity or from other religions, um, even non-religious rulers, Stalin wasn't particularly religious, um, all rulers are, are, are prone to claim absolute power and will justify it with whichever reasons they can get their hands on. Hmm. Um, it is notable that, that uh, you know, the questioning of power authoritative figures and things like liberal democracy emerged from a christian you know nations with a christian heritage uh that's not to say that it happened because there were christians about but it is the case that a lot of early political reformers um you know in the 1800s and when the french were rebelling and everyone there was a lot of upheaval a lot of the reformers who were not particularly religious cited old testament texts Yeah, the other detail I wanted to bring out here was um, just after describing the being under God's law, so to speak, um, the king, the king is to neither exalt himself above other members of the community, or turn aside from the commandment, um, and and that is very interesting. There seems to be a singular commandment there rather than commandments, but the the not exalting himself above other members of the community that was fascinating to me. Isn't that kind of how can you be a king without being exalted above? Well, indeed. What, and what it suggests, that immediately makes me think of what we'd previously talked about. You know, these um, sort of, the, the, the every seven years, the religious observations, the worship, the feasting, those, the, the uh, returning of property to its original owners, the king would have been would would have would have been subject 
to all of those laws and customs as well. So he would have been participating mm. in all of those things. So the king mm. of, of Israel would have been required every seven years to return its or all, all the land he'd gained to its original owners to free all of his slaves and all, and and to contribute to the communal feasting you know more than he would personally benefit from you know all of those things would apply to him as well um so it is very egalitarian there's yeah the, the story i would like to um point to like as a bit of an illustration that is is the story of david and bathsheba where david was used to lead his army in person and then the story of david and bathsheba starts with uh starts with the phrase it was springtime the time of the year when the kings went to war but david stayed home and he sent his soldiers to go and do the fighting and while Mm. while they're away he takes one of their wives and he kills the soldier um and and this i heard a sermon by lawrence turner where he pointed out that the story is going wrong right from the very start. Whatever you think about the the moral well, I, I, I dimensions of going to war, at some point, it's fascinating that uh, the morally correct choice is for David to, <laughs> well, not so much to go to war, but to take personal yeah. responsibility and lead. Yeah. in war. <clears throat> One other thing, Locke. There's a, read that passage again that you read to us about qualities of this of this king. Um, so I, just a, just an explanation in this this Bible which I which I have found and am reading from in celebration. It's an NRSV, NRSV New Revised Standard Version, which is a fairly um, formal translation. So it's it's um, in places it's not reading quite as fluidly. I prefer to read out loud from things like the New Living Translation. Uh, but the upside of it is that it it's a, the kind of translation that's paying a little bit more attention to the, the um, matching you know words that match up in different places translated the same uh, sometimes at the expense of, of readability in English. Um, so is this the properties of the king? Mm. Um, verse twenty. Uh, so the king will diligently observe all of the words of this law and these statutes, neither exalting himself above other members of the community nor turning aside from the commandment either to the right or to the left, okay. so that he and his descendants may reign long. How many, how many kings are described in the whole history of the kings as neither turning to the right nor to the left? <laughs> well, you, I mean, you just referred to David. He would have to be one of the, the, the top kings of the kings, and he, he had his moments where he turned to the right and the left. The phrase, as far as a quick quick search through a concordance is only used as far as I can tell to describe one king. And it's not David. It is Josiah. Josiah, I was going to say the one who finds the scroll and uh, he finds the scroll and has it read, which is another allusion to this passage. Yeah. And uh, do you know, I think there is actually the, the Sabbath school pamphlet in a couple of weeks time has a week where we can talk more about this um, about the use of Deuteronomy or the references to Deuteronomy in other parts of the Old Testament. I, I think that it is implied, either by the Bible text itself or by tradition, that the scroll that is found and read out is the book of Deuteronomy. Well, the, the passage in both Chronicles and Kings, uh, when they are introducing Josiah, they say he walked in the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. 
<laughs> so that they had they had one king. I think I think in the whole history right, of kings, he is, he is the only one who's not described as making some sort of mistake. Yeah, and he had the <laughs> scroll brought in and read before him, which is I think a nice allusion to this passage yeah. too, because that's that's um we, we'll have to come back to it when we're when we're yeah. sort of tracing Deuteronomy through the rest of the Old Testament. Well, that is a really cool detail. Thanks, Cam. And there's another one that I want to pick up on um, with with a, a part here that feels slightly weird. Uh, so uh, this is closer back to the David and Bathsheba part of the story, and it's moving on to David's son, Solomon. And I, I just want to set the scene again, just, just for a reminder. This is what it said here in Deuteronomy 17, starting in verse 16. We read this earlier, but I want to bring it to your attention. Even so, he must not acquire many horses for himself or return the people to Egypt in order to acquire more horses, since the Lord has said to you, you must never return that way again. And he must not acquire many wives for himself or else his heart will turn away. Also, silver and gold must he must not acquire in great quantity for himself. Now, what is it? There's horses, wives and gold, all of which are associated with Solomon. This mm-hmm. is the interesting point. If you come through, and it's the order of them that's remarkable, because if you come through to 1 Kings verse eleven, chapter 11, mm-hmm. uh, my and I've just told you how, how um, uh, carefully this translation that I'm reading from has been done, but it's got an extra biblical heading on chapter 11 of 1 Kings that says Solomon's errors. And it leads in here and it said that, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. And it goes on and it describes his many wives and concubines. But that's 1 Kings 11. Before my Bible has that verse, that, that, that heading, Solomon's errors, look what it says in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 26. Solomon gathered together chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones, and he made cedars as numerous as the sycamores of the Shephelah. Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Kew, and the king's traders received them from Kew at a price. Mm. He's literally acquiring many horses, and he's acquiring them from Egypt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Before, what well, the point that I'm making is that for our modern ears, it's very easy to hear when First Kings gets to describing Solomon's many wives. We start to wonder to ourselves, Ah, hang on, is this part of the great wisdom for which Solomon is famous, or is this Solomon perhaps turning a little to the right or a little to the left? Mm. What what I'm highlighting is that for a reader, the first listener of the story of first kings they've already gotten that hint two paragraphs earlier because not long after the queen of sheba in the story solomon is described as having twelve thousand horses which is not just a small deviation from this commandment in deuteronomy it's a wildly just vivid one and and it specifically mentions that he bought them from from egypt so uh, it's just another, it's one of those little things that I was excited to learn a few years ago and realize, hey, uh, sometimes there are details hiding there in totally plain sight uh, when you're mm. reading these Bible stories that <laughs> that it's just easy to miss because you're not culturally immersed in these writings. What, what, one of the extra con- contexts of this lock is that these people have just are about to, I was about to say they just have, but I'm thinking of the book of Joshua, in 
Deuteronomy, they're about to enter in the promised land where God organizes military victories for them without the aids of horses. Mm. Mm. Uh, so there's there's an element of self-sufficiency because horses were the super weapon. Basically, the modern the modern equivalent would would be tactical nukes. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, mm. So it's basically it's basically God saying don't don't develop a nuclear stockpile. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, very much so. Horses are, are reserved. Horses are are a military technology in this culture. It's notable, isn't it, that when Jesus rides uh, in a kind of a kind of role play of of being crowned king in some ways when he rides into Jerusalem, it's on a donkey, which is a peaceable um, hmm. industrial tool rather than on a horse, which would be the much much more normal um, you know mode of transport for a king. But of course, horses are, are military tools. Um, so yeah, uh, I think that those of you who are listening who rather like horses, or who are indeed fond of doing working with horses and riding horses can take comfort from the fact that in our culture, horses have a much less military and empire connotation. But but really, it's not that not that long ago that they that they really still did have that that association with with military and warfare and um, you know the ability to exert deadly yes. power and if you're interested to learn more about that look up the nicene horse herds or you know any of the history of the mongolian <laughs> yeah <laughs> can i pull out another thing Locke, that just occurred to me um this context of separating yourself from the people elevating yourself in power and wealth and not associating with the people uh, joseph is one of the great heroes of the old testament rightly so a wonderful type of Christ, gracious to his brothers. Um, uh, there is an uh, interesting sort of postscript to the story of Joseph, which, uh, which is a warning about the sort of dangers of, of playing too high and mighty. Uh, when the people come in the middle of the famine to Joseph, and I'm looking at Genesis 47, they say, because remember, Joseph took the grain from them and stockpiled it and sold it back to them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And the people ran out of money. They said, we've got nothing left except our bodies and our land. Why should we perish before your eyes and our land as well? Buy us and our land in exchange for food, and we, will, and we with our land will be in bondage to Pharaoh. Give us seed so that we may live and not die, and that the land may be, not become desolate. So Joseph bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh. The Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields because the famine was too severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's. And Joseph reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to the other. However, he did not buy the land of the priests because, and this is, I think, known historically that the priests were independent landholders. Uh, they priests were able to grow their own food and source their own food. They didn't have to sell themselves into slavery. Uh, Joseph said to the people, "Now that I've bought you and your land today for Pharaoh, here is seed for you to plant the ground. But when the crop comes in, give a fifth of it to Pharaoh. You have saved our lives," they said. May we find favour in the eyes of our Lord. We will be in bondage to Pharaoh. Now, this is, of course, long before the 400 years that the children of Israel were there. You know, it's right at the start. But we, we commented um, when we were discussing right at the start of this season about the 10 plagues, the fact that, you know, there were some pretty awful things happening in Egypt in terms of mm. mass slavery. Uh, 
the system of mass slavery, the, the culture of you know people being enslaved en masse to their to their leader is actually set up by Joseph. <laughs> That's a curly detail I didn't know of, Ken. Yeah, so you compare that picture to the picture that's described in Deuteronomy of what what the king would be like. Mm. Should should be should should be like should be like. Yeah. Are we going to comment Locke while we're here about um, school principals and vice chancellors who don't participate in the activities of lecturing and teaching, and, <laughs> or, or mingle with the with with the lowly staff members uh. or? <laughs> On 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 a on a slightly serious note on that, Cam, I think we we've all been worked in various different organisations and hierarchy, and one of the things that is most demoralising to an organisation, which is what you're referring to, is when those at the top of the hierarchy do not hold themselves to the same rules and standards as they expect of those at the bottom of the hierarchy. If you want to kill morale mm. and productivity in an organization, the best thing you can do as a leader is go in and do something like, you know, have flexible work hours for yourself, but nobody else, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Mm. Um, so it's, it's a very real thing as well in that this, this is not just, you know, this, this stuff in Deuteronomy about the king is not just moralizing. There are practical reasons to do this that 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 have to do with the well-being and the morale and the happiness of the general population you know which enhances the stability of the political system i'm mm. i'm going down a very dangerous yeah. track for me this this gets very ranty rant rant territory if mm. you want to destroy a society and a culture create income inequality it will it will shred yeah. itself within a couple of generations if you make the wealth gap big enough you know, yeah. mm. I'm glad that we've taken it here because I was actually it was on the tip of my tongue to ask, OK, what's the value of this part of Deuteronomy for us? None of us are kings. Few of us are going to be. Um, so so I I I hear what you're saying, Luke, as being a fairly useful partial answer to that. Um, you could substitute the word king here for. Uh, perhaps some forms of much more modern management um, and leadership, and and see some stuff of great value. Yeah, there's there's. Uh, <clears throat> I remember hearing, and this was from a reputable source, but I can't remember which source it was. Maybe in one of the podcasts I listened to, um, a discussion about. No, it was probably a Stephen Colbert video. Anyway, somewhere, cut this out in the edit. <laughs> I remember hearing recently when the Americans were debating, I think the it was at the inheritance tax, or one of the tax that's imposed on very wealthy people with the transfer of property to their children, uh, that uh, most Americans agreed that the system was inequitable and uh, meant that rich people didn't pay their share, a fair share of tax. The rich people got a good deal. But the majority of Americans were also against changing the rule because one day they, they hoped this is the American dream, is that one day you'll be part of that rich elite. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yes, which is problematic. Look at this at the other end, where none of us are going to be kings. But I have found myself thinking sometimes, oh, I wish I was in a position to make decisions about stuff. 
I don't like the way this is happening. I don't like the way that's happening either in the workplace um, or, you know, in friendship groups, in family groups, in workplaces, within our um, just local community and national community. You know, sometimes you think, oh, I could fix that. Or I'm, I, I can see at least, even if I couldn't fix it, that the people in charge are doing a very bad job. Um, and if, if you ever attempted to sort of have the aspiration to be in charge of something, this passage is a real warning. Hmm. That, that it's just a really fraught thing to be in charge of anything. Yes. The dangers to the king are, uh, are much greater than they are to the, the commoner, you know. Um, yeah, for moral corruption. Well, not just moral corruption, but also the practical dangers. You know, the acquisition of, of a large military force makes you a threat that has to be neutralized. The acquisition of great, mm. great wealth makes you a, a, a target that that can be that, that yeah. can be robbed from. Um, you know, yeah. a, a lot of these things that they're saying to the king don't do. It, it is there is a moral element, absolutely, but there's also very much an element. Hey, you're going to be surrounded by powerful neighbours. Don't paint a massive target on your back. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is this is that's an interesting allusion too, Luke, with the way that plays out with Hezekiah well, inviting the envoy from exactly. Babylon to. And, and, oh, was it no? Was it Hezekiah? Which of the kings was it? We talked about this previously. Who didn't have sufficient faith in God, but he made a show of being pious. Uh, it was around the time of Hezekiah, but it wasn't. It was like Ahaz. I think it was I Ahaz think, or something like that. Where it was a self-fulfilling prophecy, where God said, "Pray yes. to me, don't go to Egypt for help." But he went to Egypt for help, and that ended with um, Babylon, you know, wiping him out. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. That was a, a, a number of seasons ago. I think we were discussing that. Um, yeah, I mean, the one remarkable theme within the Old Testament story is the failure of kings. Yeah. Even and and let's let's concede for the moment that David is pretty good and you mentioned Josiah is is among the best. Um the ones almost almost without exception, the Old Testament kings that managed to do a reasonable job of it themselves failed in at least one important sense and that was in managing to have any sort of effective and productive generational handover of those same values to their children yeah mm-hmm. if, in fact it's really interesting if you said if you said I've, I've not really spent that much i've looked at the old testament through the lens of sort of social justice but i've never really sat down and looked at it through the lens of political science <laughs> and obviously yeah. the two are really closely connected but yeah you know saying as humans we live in groups and there's just particularly particular dangers around that and um and how is power to be distributed and what mm-hmm. are the properties that we should expect of the people who hold power yeah and, and i mean it's 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 fairly consistent that the the, the moral insight in deuteronomy in um, some of the other books that we've looked at, the King Proverbs and some of the other places, the, the moral insight is, is quite advanced, you know. The, the mm. social structure of the Israelites, you know, I think if you had a modern political scientist look at it, would go, that's pretty clever, you know. Mm. That, that's yeah. very yeah. unlike most ancient civilizations, 
Not not all, but most. They didn't manage to do it very well. It's really interesting, um, Josiah rediscovering the scroll infers that it's been lost. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, and the I mean the the parallel the parallel thread that keeps running through it is of course idolatry, right? The the kings turn astray, and all of the worst kings are the ones that set up the Asherah poles and the Baal temples and you know so there's in the Old Testament story there's this real um, blending of the religious and the political Mm. and that's that's another thing that's helpful for us to try and remember because it's not too prominent even in the ways that it is subtly still present in our modern world it's much much less substantial Mm. and much less significant it does mean does mean though luck that uh greater more daylight is introduced and i think more daylight is introduced than should be between our religious and our political lives and uh I, as Adventists, as an Advent, I think it'd be fair to say, as an Adventist, I was brought up to be shy of political involvement. <laughs> yes, yeah. you know, belonging to a political party, we we supported lots of good causes mm. while we were at church, but we never, you know, no one ever ran a church group to go and attend a protest about something that they thought that was wrong, or wrote letters to the members of Parliament, which is interesting because that's actually quite a departure from Adventist heritage. The early Adventists would go and do exactly that sort of thing, you know, in mm. regard to social issues that they, they considered to be important, such as such as alcohol and, and uh, mm. you know, certain types of entertainment and whatnot. Smoking. Adventist church had a, had a, a lot of influence um, in changing the culture around smoking in Australia. On that note, while we're promoting good causes, I think that we might wrap this up now. I know we're finishing a little early, but I know that, Locke, you've just taken delivery of 300 exams to mark. Yeah, that's and, right. And I'm about to take delivery. So we, I, I vote one for, for cutting this discussion a little bit shorter and throwing back to our listeners who can email us any thoughts that they have or insights to the address sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. And please do, because we enjoy... Your comments always. Uh, <clears throat> while we're on the subject of good causes, I thought I'd I'd throw out a bit of a shout out to the to the uh, what I hope is not tokenistic. There seems to be some substance to it to the to the uh, current trending on social media about Team C's, and I, I'd encourage anyone to jump on YouTube and do a, a search for Team C's S E A S, and it's about. Uh, a group of online influencers using their platform to uh, talk about the problem of plastic in the oceans, and there's some there's some fantastically informative and and amusing and you know they're fun to watch um, videos by by people who are just highlighting the 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 problem of plastic in the ocean and what we can do to fix it. And you know it'd be it's, it's very dangerous to talk about political things in a church because not everyone votes for the same political party. Uh, but there are some causes that we should be, you know, holding our leaders to account on that I think we could all find pretty uniform agreement on. Mm. And um, this is a good example, I think, of something that's, that's quite apolitical, has political ramifications, but it's not, it's not, or at least it ought not be divided along any particular party lines. Mm. So uh, go watch those videos and, and, and 
I guess one of the one of the lessons from here is that those of us who who ever at all aspire to lead in any way ought to be very careful, and uh, we all ought in a democratic society to hold our leaders to account to to adhere perhaps more closely to the to the to the image portrayed in in the very progressive image uh, portrayed in Deuteronomy seventeen. 